And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's August the 2nd, 214th day of the year. 151 days remain until the end of the year. The, uh, let's see, where's my next thing? Hmm. There we go. Well, it is National Ice Cream Sandwich Day. Brigada Day. Earth Overshoot Day. What happens if we run out of resources? Well, we just move to Mars. National CAD Day. National Coloring Book Day. A lot of those in the White House these days, I understand. National Hue Day. National Jacqueline Day. Republic Day in North Macedonia. Take a Penny, Leave a Penny Day. Virgin of Los Angeles Day. There's not too many of those in Los Angeles, from what I understand. Okay. In 338 B.C., a Macedonian army led by Philip II defeated the combined forces of Athens and Thebes in the Battle of Sharonia, securing Macedonian army uh, in uh, Greece and uh, Aegean. 2016 B.C., the Carthaginian army led by Hannibal defeated a numerically superior Roman army at the Battle of Cannae. 49 B.C., Caesar, who marched to Spain early in the year, leaving Marcus Antonius in charge of Italy, defeats uh, Pompey's general, Africanus, I'm sorry, Afranius, and Petraeus, and uh, Lerita, north of the Ebo, Ebro River. 461 AD, Majorian is arrested in, near uh, Tortona in northern Italy and deposed by the Suvian general, Resimir, as puppet emperor. 932. After a two-year siege, the city of Toledo in Spain surrenders to the forces of the Caliph of Cordoba, Abd al-Rahman III, assuming a, an important victory in his uh, campaign to subjugate the Central March. 1274. Edward I of England returns from the Ninth Crusade and is crowned king 17 days later. 1343, after the execution of her husband, Jean de Clisson, sells her estates and raises a force of men with which to attack French shipping and ports. 1377, Russian troops are defeated by forces of the Blue Horde Khan, eruption in the Battle of uh, Panya River. 1415, Thomas Gray is executed for participating in the Southampton Plot. The Southampton Plot, for those who are not familiar, is a conspiracy to depose King Henry V of England. It was discovered in 1415, just as the king was about to sail on a campaign to France as part of the Hundred Years' War. They were going to replace him with Edmund Mortimer, the fifth Earl of March. He was the great-grandson of Lionel of Antwerp, Duke of Clarence, second surviving son of King Edward III, and his claim to the throne was superior. She won't allow female intermediaries. He was the grandson of Philippa of Clarence, daughter of Lionel, to that of Henry V, and his father Henry IV, who derived their claim from Henry IV's father, John of Gaunt, third surviving son of Edward III. I'm descended from Edward IV. Should I raise an army and go take over England? Too cold. 1610. During Henry Hudson's search for the Northwest Passage, he sails into what's now known as Hudson Bay. 1776, the signing of the United States Declaration of Independence took place on this date. 1790, first United States Census is conducted. 1798, French Revolutionary Wars, the Battle of the Nile, concludes in a British victory. 1830, Charles X of Florence abdicates the throne in favor of his grandson, Henry uh, Henri. 1858, the Government of India Act of 1858 replaces company rule in India with that of the British Raj. 
1969, Japan's Edo Society class system was abolished as part of the Meiji Restoration Reforms. 1870, Tower Subway, the world's first underground tube railway, opens in London, England. 1873, the Clay Street Hill Railroad begins operating the first cable car in San Francisco's famous cable car system. 1897, Afro-Afghan War, Siege of Malakan, ends when a relief column was able to reach the British garrison in the Malakan states. 1903, the Elinden Preobrazhini uprising against the Ottoman Empire begins on this date. 1914, a German occupation of Luxembourg during World War I begins. 1916, World War I, Austrian sabotage causes the sinking of the Italian battleship Leonardo da Vinci at Toronto. 1918, the first general strike in Canadian history takes place in Vancouver on this date. In 1922, a typhoon hits Chantal, Republic of China, kills more than 50,000 people. 1923, Vice President Calvin Coolidge becomes president on the death of President Warren G. Harding. 1932, the positron antiparticle of the electron is discovered by Carl Anderson. 1934, Reichskanzler Adolf Hitler becomes Fuhrer of Germany following the death of President Paul von Hindenburg. 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 is passed in America, the effect of which is to render marijuana and all its byproducts illegal. There's always somebody trying to tell you what you can and can't do for no other reason, and they don't want it done. 1939, Albert Einstein and Leo Slezard write a letter to Franklin Roosevelt urging him to begin the Manhattan Project to develop a nuclear weapon. 1943, the Holocaust, Jewish prisoners stage a revolt in Treblinka, one of the deadliest of the Nazi death camps, where about 900,000 people were murdered in less than 18 months. 1943, World War II, motor torpedo boat PT-109 is rammed by the Japanese destroyer Amagiri and sinks. Lieutenant John F. Kennedy, future president of the U.S., saves all but two of his crew. 1944, Asnam, birth of the Soviet Republic of Macedonia, celebrated as the Day of the Republic in North Macedonia. Also on this day, 1944, the largest trade convoy of the World War arrives safely in the Western Approaches. 1945, the end of the Potsdam Conference took place on this date. 1947, the British South American Airways, uh, Averill Lancastrian airliner, crashes into a mountain during a flight from Buenos Aires, Argentina, to Santiago, Chile. The wreckage wouldn't be found until 1998. 1968, an earthquake hits Casa Aurora, Philippines, killing more than 270 people, injuring 261. 1973, flash fire kills 51 people at the Summerlin Amusement Center at Douglas on the Isle of Man. 1980, a bomb explodes at a railway station in Bologna, Italy, killing 85, wounding more than 200. 1982, the Helsinki Metro, the first rapid transit system of Finland, is open to the general public. 1985, Delta Airlines Flight 191, a Lockheed L. 1011 TriStar crashes at Dallas Forest Worth International Airport. 137 people are killed. 1989, Pakistan's readmitted to the Commonwealth of Nations after um, having restored democracy for the first time since 1972. Also in 89, a massacre is carried out by the Indian Peacekeeping Force in Sri Lanka. Killed 64 ethnic Tamil civilians. 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait, eventually leading to the Civil to the Gulf War. Now, that was a, a sucker invasion. Our ambassador told them uh, we wouldn't say anything if they did. 1999, the Gaisal train disaster claims 285 lives in Assam, India. 2005, Air France Flight 358 lands at Toronto Pearson International Airport and runs off the runway. Causes the plane to burst into flames, injuring uh, 12 people. Nobody died, though. And in 2014, at least 146 people were killed, more than 114 injured in a factory explosion in Kunshan, Jingzhou, China.
Well, there's a lot of very strange things that are taking place right now with people in food lines and living paycheck to paycheck. Our government spending millions to regulate light bulbs. They've already got a, this administration declaring war on gas stoves. And they want us to drive electric vehicles. Now, I don't know about you, but it'd be a strain to pay $70,000 for an electric car that can go about 300 miles before it needs to be recharged. But, you know, the poor folks who depend on the, the vehicles to uh, get to work and to the doctor and to the grocery store, they don't have sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 to buy an electric car. But the people who live in their mother's basements and believe all this leftist crap, who find themselves in positions to be able to dictate policy, are not living in the real world. It's just like the woke folks. It's been proven a number of times, you go woke, you go broke, but they're still urging companies to go woke. It's the right thing to do, you know. Does anybody pay any attention to what's going on? The um, Right now, the man who is dictating all this, Joe Biden, it's coming out that he's lied and cheated and uh, stolen since he was a senator. But that's okay because he's the wonderful Joe Biden. Legal experts are saying that the Biden scandal is shaping up to be one of the greatest scandals in the history of this country. The, um, and he, he starts talking about things that there's no way in the world that could be true. This is the president doing that. Keeps talking about his son Bo dying in Iraq. No, he died in Bethesda, I think. We got people disappearing. The um, And NBC News was just called out by conservatives as hypocritical for promoting the notion it's impossible to change your race. While denying this argument could also apply to gender. Now this report talked about several professors and activists who uh, knocked a transracial trend gaining steam from youth on TikTok. The race change to another, or the RCTA movement, believes one can manifest a change in appearance and even genetics to appear to be a member of another race. These are young people who don't know any better. And yet, they get backing for their silly ideas. Dylan Mulvaney's already destroyed Bud Light by... Pretending to be a female. And there's so many silly things going on, and our government's doing nothing to stop it. And uh, Gavin Newsom, who has been a front-runner of solar this and solar that and get off of fossil fuels, well, right now, is without fossil fuels, California would be a wasteland. And, you know, it's been... so much lying and carrying on by this administration. we got a vice president who can't speak a sentence without giggling and um, apologists for Biden say it, 
Oh, Biden's death explains his blind eye conduct around Hunter. Hunter can do no wrong. I mean, that's why they call him Prince Hunter. And what's, um, you know, right now, he is so anti-hunting that he has refused to allow funding for any school that teaches archery or marksmanship. That's not his job to decide what schools teach. But unfortunately, people who ought to be pulling him back in line are saying, oh yeah, go for it, do do whatever. And a lot of folks I talk to tell me that Jill Biden's actually running the country because he is literally losing it. Worse on a daily basis. And a lot of beer distributors are saying that the consumers are not coming back to Bud Light beer. And Bud was the beer of choice until Dylan Mulvaney's face appeared on the cans. And Gavin Newsom is also trying to get the courts to pay attention to race and deciding guilt or innocence. But this violating the law is violating the law. It doesn't make any difference what color you are. And, in fact, that cost me a career when I told a senior judge that uh, everybody was entitled to representation to include blacks. He called me a traitor to your to my race and Somebody submitted a resignation in my name. And when I pointed out it was a forgery, uh-uh, nope, we got it on good authority. You really did sign this. You just don't remember it. And the court accepted that silly explanation. Well, we've been talking about... Thanks for falling apart here. The CIA... And all the shenanigans they've gotten up to. Now, I talked yesterday about the fact that uh, we gave tacit support to the assassination of uh, President um, Diem in Vietnam. And the repercussions were unbelievable. Er uh, ushered in a period of uh, political instability in Vietnam that hampered the ability to fight the war against North Vietnamese. That's the problem when you put suits in charge of military operations. They look at the political aspects and not the military, and that gets people killed. Now, after that instability, the U.S. increased its presence in Vietnam. November 22nd, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald, allegedly, it's never been proven, assassinated uh, Kennedy, elevating Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson for the presidency. And being afraid that he'd be the first president to lose a war, and he was also committed to perpetuating uh, Kennedy's policies. He increased the U.S. military commitment to the Republic of Vietnam. And though the U.S moved from covert to overt military activity in 1965. The, the CIA remained in Vietnam and continued collecting intelligence and engaging in covert activities. One notable CIA operation that caused all kinds of backlash was uh, the Phoenix Program. It was intended to disrupt the National Liberation Front for South Vietnam, or the Viet Cong, which was an armed resistance group that operated in the Republic, as well as uh, neighboring Laos and Cambodia. Now, Phoenix was officially part of civil operations and revolutionary development uh, support, a pacification program organized by the U.S. and South Vietnam. The individual uh, in charge of that particular um, 
organization was uh, William Colby. He was temporarily loaned to the uh, Civil Operations and Revolutionary Development Support uh, Program by the, the CIA. And the object of this program was to gain support of villagers in rural areas in the South who were mostly controlled or at least influenced by the Viet Cong. Established in 1960, the Viet Cong were controlled by Communist North Vietnam, and they had the job of operating both traditional military and guerrilla units within uh, South Vietnam, and working alongside members of the South Vietnamese Special Police. Uh, CIA officers tasked to the Phoenix program hunted alleged members over supporters of the Viet Cong, and those that were captured were tortured and interrogated. Information they supplied was turned over to both the U.S. and South Vietnamese military commanders. And in addition, the Phoenix program involved killing Viet Cong members and sympathizers, and allegedly U.S. citizens of Vietnam uh, were deemed to be a security risk. Between 1967 and 1972, that was only five years, Phoenix Project officially neutralized, I like that word, neutralized, 82,000 people of whom more than 26,000 were killed. Throughout the war, the CIA continued operating uh, what became known as Air America. Changed its name to Air America in 1959. The company's slogan was anything, anywhere, anytime, professionally. And that certainly described the variety of its missions. Using a broad range of airplanes and helicopters, Air America pilots transported U.S. military personnel, collected uh, early intelligence on the Viet Cong, provided logistical support to the military uh, forces of the Kingdom of Laos, and conducted search and rescue operations. All the while maintaining the fiction that the company was a civilian operation. Now, Air America's aircraft are not painted in military uh, colors or designated as military assets. Some people argued that Air America carried the narcotics for its Laotian allies during the Laotian Civil War, which was 1959-1975. Allegedly, Air America's pilots actively transported Laotian uh, poppies or heroin, or at the very least turned a blind eye to the trade. Ron Rickenback, who worked in Laos for the U.S. Agency for International Aid from 62 to 69, claimed in 1988, I was on the airstrip. That was my job, to move in and about and go from place to place, and my people were in charge of dispatching aircraft. And I was in the area where opium was transshipped. I personally was witness to opium being placed on these aircraft, American aircraft. I witnessed it being taken off smaller aircraft that were coming in from outlying sites. Now, I've heard all the horse pucky about uh, we were trying our best to uh, to eradicate opium, the growing of the opium poppy. Uh, I was to change of command for the man who took over the special forces in South America. Back in the 70s. And he had made a deal with the main warlords in um, Laos and Cambodia. If we would help them establish businesses, they would destroy the poppy crop. And the CIA put a stop to that. Because too much money was coming out of the shipping of the opiums, and a lot of it was going into black projects. So when the Johnson administration uh, authorized the CIA to undertake Operation Chaos, which was 67 to 74, which was intended to ferret out alleged Soviet control of the civil rights, anti war, and new left movements of the 60s, agency was hardly breaking new ground. CIA just consolidated all its domestic surveillance operations. They read letters to and from the Soviet Union, infiltrated the anti-war, civil rights, and women's liberation movements, and worked with college faculty and staff to identify and target so-called radicals. And all that came underneath Operation Chaos, which ended up collecting information on hundreds of thousands of American citizens. And though the 
Johnson administration uh, initiated chaos. Its successor, Richard Nixon's, uh, continued and expanded the program. Nixon saw the damage the anti-war movement had done to Johnson's administration, wanted to avoid a similar fate. In addition, he sought to centralize U.S. foreign policy in the White House, and his policies involved several illegal and, as a result, secret actions, including first the bombing and then the invasion of Cambodia. Publication beginning in June of 1971 of the Pentagon Papers, which was a confidential study of U.S. decision-making regarding Vietnam from 45 to 67, heightened Nixon's concern about the revelations of top-secret information. Now, the Pentagon Papers didn't describe the Nixon administration's activities, but he knew the next so-called leak might. And during the presidential election of 1968, Nixon's surrogates, and possibly Nixon himself, might have dissuaded the South Vietnamese, South Vietnamese government from accepting a, a U.S. proposal for peace. And uh, that fact alone, if it became public, would trigger impeachment proceedings. To start the flow of leaks, the White House established what they called the Plumbers, a group of men whose task was to investigate leaks and leakers. The Plumbers, which was officially the White House Special Investigations Unit, included several individuals directly tied to the CIA, including former officer and novelist E. Howard Hunt, uh, former officer James McCord, Jr. The Plumbers undertook several operations regarding the Pentagon Papers, including breaking into and rifling the office of the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg that was the man who worked on and then disclosed the study by the State Department that became known as the Pentagon Papers. But the plumber's most infamous crime was breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. in June of 1972. Along with Hunt and McCord, three of the burglars, Frank Sturgis, who tried to kill Fidel Castro at the CIA's request, Eugenio Martinez, Cuban-born CIA informant, and Bernard Barker, a Cuban-born CIA informant, had connections with the agency. In addition, the agency provided the plumber's assistance on several of their operations, including the break-in at the Watergate. That was the official policy, or simply a matter of individuals in the agency helping old friends. Um, indetermined as of yet, it's still a matter of debate. The break-in at the Watergate ultimately forced Nixon to resign the presidency in August of 1974 because he tried to obstruct the FBI's investigation into these events. When he did this was important, he directed his staff to tell the FBI to back off investigating the break-in because it was a CIA operation. He even instructed his chief of staff, H.R. Bob Halderman, to coerce DCI Richard Helms to assist the White House in maintaining this lie. Threatened to reopen what the president called that whole Bay of Pigs thing, which the, uh, well, everything's falling apart. Which the chief of staff interpreted to mean the, um, the rumors that there was CIA involvement in President Kennedy's assassination. In fact, by that point, the CIA had a leak problem of its own. In March of 67, Ramparts, a new left political magazine, divulged the CIA had secretly funded American student groups to gin up support for U.S. foreign policy. By 1971, columnist Jack Anderson was exposed in the CIA's attempts to assassinate Castro in a Growing number of Americans believed it was at uh, least possible that the agency had been involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. Eventually, December 22, 1974, the New York Times published journalist Seymour Hersh's expose of the CIA's domestic spying operations, noting that thousands of laws abiding American citizens had been targeted. Well, these explosive reports in the general sense that Americans never quite got the full story about the CIA's role in Watergate... Um, resulted in three current investigations of the agency in 75, a so-called year of intelligence, one of which was the church committee. You know, Senator Howard Baker, who was on the committee that investigated Watergate, famously said of the CIA's role in the break-in, 
There are animals crashing around in the forest. I can hear them, but I can't see them. So he was pretty sure the CIA had a hand in it. And these included the President's Commission on CIA Activities within the United States. It's called the Rockefeller uh, Commission for its um, chairman, Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. The Church Committee, United States Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, or the Pike Committee, after its chairman, Representative Otis Pike of New York. Though by far the best known of these investigations was the Church Committee. It was a Rockefeller Commission that uncovered the most important piece of evidence, the so-called Family Jewels, a massive collection of documents related to the CIA's illegal activities conducted between 59 and 73. Well, commissioned by James R. Schlesinger during his brief stint as DCI, these documents were the basis for Hirsch's report on the CIA at the end of 1974. Documents detailed a bewildering array of questionable activities, including assassinations, warrantless entries, and break-ins of American homes, surveillance of American citizens, illegal wiretaps, and mail openings, and non-consensual experiments on Americans. These revelations shocked Americans, though even decades later, William Colby, who succeeded Schlesinger as Director of Central Intelligence and who got the report, said... uh, the whole set of items comprising the family jewels was pretty small potatoes. They really were. Congress disagreed and passed new legislation designed to prevent these types of abuses. Called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the law establishes procedures for electronic surveillance and created a special court, the United States uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, to consider requests for warrants to conduct uh, electronic surveillance. In addition, in February 1976, President Gerald Ford issued an executive order, EO-11905, that prohibited anyone employed by the U.S. government from assassinating or conspiring to assassinate political leaders. The order also created several bureaucratic structures for ensuring that the CIA didn't engage in any illegal activities. And uh, these safeguards were expanded by Ford's successor, President Jimmy, you want some peanuts, Carter, in 1978. He signed Executive Order 12036. However, despite these changes, the Reagan administration unshackled the CIA in the 80s with disastrous results for both the president and the agency. Well, while all this is going on, Hollywood wasn't um, sitting on his hands. Three days of the Condor came out. It was a fictional story of a CIA whistleblower. Starred Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway and Max von Sydow. It was an adaptation of Jane Grady's 1974 novel, Six Days of the Condor. Told the story of Joe Turner, who worked at the American uh, Literary Historical Society, a CIA front located in Manhattan. His job was to read books and newspapers and magazines and report to the agency if they contained anything resembling actual CIA operations. Well, Turner's out to lunch, literally, when his co-workers are killed by party or parties unknown. Turns out that these murders were committed by a rogue element in the agency whose members were alarmed by Turner's report on a novel he had read as part of his duties. That novel exposed a plan they had set in motion to seize oil fields in the Middle East. Movie ends more ominously than the, the book, leaving the viewer unclear whether Turner's attempt to blow the whistle on the CIA's actions uh, resulted in any consequence for the agency personnel involved. The uh, interesting thing, I remember when I was in law school, the CIA came recruiting. And I didn't pass muster because I had a military background. They they felt that somehow that disqualified me from serving in the CIA. Never did tell me why, but I don't think they even knew why. They were some of the goofiest folks I ever had the misfortune to deal with. And they answered none of my questions. Well... With the era of tension between the U.S. and Russia coming to a close and 
early 2000s, a lot of folks questioned the future role of the CIA. You know, for more than 40 years, Berlin was a hot spot for the CIA and KGB activity, but when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, the spy game changed forever. November 10, 1989, the Berlin Wall came down. People gathered at the Brandenburg Gate to celebrate the unification of democratic West Germany and formerly communist East Germany. And a lot of information came to light that uh, made us question the uh, the honesty of a lot of folks that uh, we thought were friends. After the disturbing revelation of 1975, the Year of Intelligence, Congress implemented changes at the CIA designed to ensure greater accountability. These changes coincided with detente, the period between from the late 60s through 1979, a reduced tension between the Soviet Union and the U.S. This area of relative calm between the superpowers had become the cornerstone of Nixon's foreign policy. But the end of detente invigorated the agency's clandestine activities, which included provoking the Soviet Union to invade Afghanistan and then covertly supplying the Mujahideen and illegally supporting other communist uh, countries in Nicaragua. But the agency failed to predict the collapse of the Soviet Union and with it the end of the Cold War, which left the agency um, a little bit adrift, so to speak. Many people begin to question if the U.S. even needed an intelligence service. You're the same people that say, uh, outlaw light bulbs. And that coupled with several attention-grabbing instances of officers sharing secrets, most notably Aldrich Ames in 94, called into question the CIA's very future. Following Nixon's resignation, August 9th, 1974, Vice President Gerald, just tell me what to say, Ford, assumed the presidency. He's unique in the history of the U.S. He's the only person to assume the presidency without having been to, uh, elected to office or to that office or to the vice presidency. He became vice president when Spira Agnew resigned. He was appointed. Um, he entered the White House with a mandate and then immediately pardoned President Nixon. It moved a lot of Americans considered to be controversial. As a consequence... Ford lacked the power and support to prevent Congress from passing new legislation designed to regulate the CIA. In May of 1976, the Senate established by an overwhelming margin of 72 to 22 a permanent select committee on intelligence with oversight of all elements of the United States intelligence community. It was a similar House committee uh, established the next year. The problem is they give instructions the powers that be nod and say, oh, yes, 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 we'll do it, we'll do it. And then the guy on the ground does what he wants. January 76, Ford attempted to redeem the CIA's uh, image by appointing former Republican National Committee Chairman and Chief of the U.S. Liaison Office to the People's Republic of China, George H.W. Bush, as Director of Central Intelligence. Another individual who became president and who had had a hand in the Kennedy assassination. When outsider, Bush quickly earned the agency's loyalty by supporting its operations and pushing back against congressional reforms and public oversight of the CIA. He even went so far as to suggest following the assassination of Athens Greece Station Chief Richard Welch that uh, members of Congress wished to see the agency dismantled. And though he only served a year as Director of Central Intelligence, he lost the presidential election of 1976. Tactics like this endeared him to the agency personnel. In 1999, the CIA's Langley, Virginia headquarters was rechristened the George Bush Center for Intelligence. Would that they had given him some. And his son, oh please. During his 1976 presidential campaign, Ford's successor, former governor, Georgia Governor Jimmy the peanut man Carter promised the American people, I'll never lie to you. Well, I knew him slightly. My father knew him fairly well. Anything he said, Jimmy Carter, you needed to check. His pledge was a direct response to revelations of the pervasive abuses of government power committed by Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. 
January 24, 1978, Carter signed Executive Order 12036 that imposed several restrictions on America's intelligence agencies, including banning assassinations. I think that was in self-defense. In addition, Carter replaced DCI Bush with Stansfield Turner, retired admiral that served as both NATO commander-in-chief and president of the Naval War College. Carter tried to appoint former Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen that post, but withdrew after uh, two days due to hostility in the Senate. I mean, like most suits, Turner had no intelligence background and did himself no favors by bringing in outsiders to help him run the agency. Also drastically eliminated the number of CIA personnel, a decision he later claimed to regret. Well, in addition... He aggressively pushed the Carter administration to sue former CIA officer Frank Snapp, who had published a highly critical book called Decent Interval that uh, chronicled the U.S. evacuation from Saigon in 75. Turner claimed that Snapp had violated his non-disclosure agreement with the agency and President uh, Jimmy the Peanut Man Carter, who otherwise supported vigorous whistleblower protections, claimed that Decent Interval didn't qualify because the Book failed to reveal anything that would lead to an improvement in our security apparatus to the protection of American civil rights. The Supreme Court agreed, requiring Snap to turn his royalties over to the CIA, which I thought was kind of underhanded. Being an author myself, I would not turn my royalties over to anybody. And the most significant foreign policy challenge Carter faced as president was a seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran by Iranian uh, students. Allegedly students. The Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, a staunch anti-communist and American ally, had been losing power for a number of years. On a visit to Washington in December 77, clouds of tear gas deployed against anti-Pahlavi protesters wafted into a White House ceremony during which President uh, Carter toasted Iran as an island of stability in one of the most troubled areas of the world. Well, conditions in Iran continued to deteriorate. In September 1978, Pahlavi declared martial law. Unknown to most people, though, the Shah was gravely ill with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which sapped his ability to respond to fast-moving events. In January 79, he left Iran because of the growing turmoil. Two weeks later, an exiled cleric named Ayatollah Khomeini returned to the country and through its prestige behind a newly formed provisional government. February 14th, a cloud of Iranian attacked the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Now, that attack was presumably motivated in part by Iranian anger at U.S. Uh, meddling in Iran's politics, such as the overthrow of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh in 53, but the country's acting foreign minister, Ibrahim Lazdi, Got him to uh, disperse. Well, that was just the beginning, however. November 4th, Iranian students seized control of the U.S. Embassy, taking 66 men and women hostage, including six who were at the Iranian Foreign Ministry when the students entered the U.S. Embassy. This was a response to news that the Carter administration allowed the Shah to enter the U.S. to re- uh, get uh, medical treatment. Thirteen men and women among the hostages were released within days, and one of the hostages was freed in July of 1980 due to illness. But the other 52 went through 444 days of captivity until they were released in January of 1981, shortly after Ronald Reagan replaced Jimmy Carter as president of the U.S. Well, among the hostages were two CIA officers, Chief of Station Tom Ahern and Operations Officer William Dodder. Iranians quickly discovered Ahern and Donner were CIA officers and subjected the two men to psychological and physical abuse. They apparently believed the CIA's presence in Iran was much greater than it was, due in part to the fact the agency had successfully overthrown Mossadegh in 53. In fact, the CIA had a very light footprint in Iran, relying on the Shah's own intelligence service, Savak, for reporting on events in the country. And that helps explain why the agency didn't predict the Iranian revolution. But the Iranians holding the hostages didn't believe that, and they tortured uh, Ahern and Daughtery uh, in the belief that uh, the two men were lying about the uh, size and scope of Iran, uh, CIA's presence in Iran. 
An aborted attempt in 80 by the U.S. Armed Forces, which was codenamed Operation Eagle Claw, embarrassed the Carter administration. What very few people know is the peanut man was calling the shots, and that's why it all went to hell in a handbasket. Now, the Iranian hostage crisis was also the time of one of the CIA's most important successes, the Canadian caper, which was immortalized in... Uh, the 2012 film Argo. And while the Carter administration was groping for a solution to the Iranian hostage crisis, it also undertook an operation in Afghanistan that would uh, have wide-ranging consequences for the U.S. Seeking to inflict a wound on the Soviet Union similar to the one the U.S. suffered in Vietnam in 1979, the U.S. acting through the CIA covertly supported uh, dissident elements in Afghanistan. They were apparently hoping to provoke the Soviet Union into invading this graveyard of empires to prop up the communist cabal that had seized control of the country's government in 1978. By the following year, a bloody civil war had broken out with the beleaguered communist government trying to maintain power against several factions, including Islamist guerrillas, collectively called the Mujahideen. That's Arabic for those engaged in jihad, the Islamic struggle for justice, godly rule, or right conduct. Carter administration, working through the CIA, began providing arms and assistance to the Mujahideen in May of 79 in an operation codenamed Cyclone. December 24, 1979, the Carter administration got its wish. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Though Jimmy the peanut man Carter and Ronald Reagan agreed on little, both saw supporting the Mujahideen as the United States' best interest, so the Reagan administration expanded American support from Afghan guerrillas. In fact, in late March of 1985, Reagan signed National Security Decision Directive 166 that defined the two principal elements in our Afghanistan strategy as covert action support to the Afghan resistance, our diplomatic political strategy to pressure the Soviet Union to withdraw its forces from Afghanistan and to increase international support for the Afghan uh, resistance forces and pledged increased effort to achieve these goals, which led the CIA to give Afghan guerrillas shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles known as uh, Stingers. CIA support for the Afghan fighters helped turn the tide of the battle against the Soviet Union, but unintentionally laid the groundwork for the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks by helping foster the emergence of Al-Qaeda, a militant Islamic extremist group. And giving these Looney Tunes stingers was probably one of the worst decisions anybody made. In addition to expanding U.S. support for the Mujahideen, President Reagan sought to support the Contras in Nicaragua. In 1979, the Socialists and the Eastern National Liberation Front uh, overthrew Nicaragua's U.S.-backed dictator, Anastasio Somoza de Valle implemented several economic and social reforms which provoked a right-wing backlash. And that uh, backlash coalesced into several armed groups that came to be collectively called the Contras. December 1st, 1981, President Reagan authorized the CIA to begin covert operations against Nicaragua's Sandinista government. But just over a year later, Congress passed an appropriations bill that included the first Bolin Amendment which prohibited the use of funds by the CIA and the Department of Defense to furnish military assistance to certain groups seeking to overthrow the government of Nicaragua. Once again, the suits got involved in what was going on, and the end result, everything went to hell. Two additional Bolin amendments effectively ended legal U.S. support for the Contras by October 1984. The Bolin uh, amendment was named after Massachusetts figures, Representative Edward Bolin, uh, like uh, Teddy Kennedy before him, I don't know how he walked upright. He was so far to the left. Committed to continuing American support for the Contras, the Reagan administration investigated ways to surreptitiously provide funds, which resulted in the National Security Council establishing the Enterprise, an elaborate arms smuggling operation run by retired U.S. Air Force officer Richard Secord. You know, this wouldn't explicitly a CIA operation. Secord had worked with the CIA during his stints in Vietnam and certainly familiar with the agency. At the same time, in March of 1985, 
Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who was serving on the National Security Council. Hmm. Suggested uh, approaching nine U.S. governments and organizations to channel funds to the countries. In the following months, Reagan administration enlisted aid for the countries from Honduras President Roberto Suazo Cordova and Sultan Hassan no Bokash Ibn Omar Ali Saifuddin III of Brunei. September 1986, North even promised Panama's dictator, Manuel Noriega, that the U.S. would uh, turn a blind eye to his narcotics trafficking in exchange for assistance for the countries. Meanwhile, the Reagan administration was trying to reach out to so-called moderates in the Iranian government. This effort took on an added urgency when Hezbollah, an Islamist uh, political party and paramilitary group with their ties to Iran, seized uh, several U.S. citizens, including chief of the CIA's Beirut station, William Buckley. Needless to say, the CIA was committed to recovering Buckley. Within the year, representatives of the Reagan administration were discussing meeting with Iranians and exchanging weapons if, uh, if Iran pressured Hezbollah to return the uh, hostages. Mid-September 1985, the United States authorized Israel to sell Iran U.S.-made tow missiles, and Hezbollah released a hostage, the Reverend Benjamin Weir. Israel sold the weapons to Iran at highly inflated prices, which generated massive profits for the U.S. Subsequent arms sales uh, over the next 14 months, though, yielded little lasting success. While Hezbollah did release several men, it also continued seizing hostages, so the underlying situation really didn't improve any. Reagan administration used the money generated from the arms sales to Iran to provide support to the countries thereby circumventing the Bolin Amendments. Complex arrangement came toppling down in October of 1986 when Sandinista forces shot down a C-123 carrying weapons for the countries. The plane was owned and operated by Corporate Air Services, a front for Southern Air Transport, which was in itself a CIA front company. Two American pilots, Nicaraguan radio operator, died in the crash, but uh, Eugene uh, Hassenfuss, an American uh, Kicker. That was the person responsible for pushing the cargo out of the plane while over the designated drop area. Parachuted to safety and was captured by Sandinista forces. His capture, as well as um, documents recovered from the, uh, the dead American pilots, proved the U.S. was surreptitiously aiding the countries. A few weeks later, a Lebanese magazine named Ash Shara reported on the arms for hostage into the scheme, which uh, soon picked up by the U.S. press and led to charges that the U.S. had uh, traded arms for hostages. And well, we can't manage to do a story about our president accepting bribes, but we can, we can sure embarrass the military. Our media's gotten good at that. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk more about some of the CIA shenanigans. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.